1, verses 15 to 23. The supremacy of the Son of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. What comes into your mind when you hear the word majesty? You might perhaps think of the queen. Or you might think of a royal figure, a king or a queen, therefore. Uh, perhaps like Carol and many others, you might think of the 1970s Jack Hayford song, Majesty. Uh, the word majesty comes from the Latin mustaeus, which means greatness. It means to be respected above everything else, to have the supreme status. Today we are commencing our fourth and final series for this year, The Majesty of Jesus. And in particular this term, we're going to be considering a range of different New Testament texts that claim outright that Jesus is God, that Jesus is divine. And this, in fact, was a significant um, heresy that the, ch that the church, not that Jesus was divine, but the fact that Jesus was divine was something the church had to vigorously, the early church had to vigorously guard and protect and defend because there were many heretics who didn't accept or believe that Jesus is fully God. And that is the premise of this series, That the, certainly the premise of the previous three series as well, that Jesus is God. I love this image we have here of a, a boy, in a sense, dressed as a king. And obviously there are Christmas tones intended here, and this series will take us into Christmas Day. But there's also something, in a sense, unexpected about a child as a king. And that's actually how our king came to us. He came as an infant. And the majesty of God is, in many respects, unexpected. 
Interestingly, Jesus taught that one actually has to become like a child to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus not only did that literally, but he also demonstrated through his dependence on the Father what it is to be someone who is part of God's kingdom. And Jesus is the king of that kingdom. Today we come to a profound text in Colossians 1, 15 to 23. There are few passages in the Bible that so clearly outline Christ's divinity as Colossians 1, 15 to 23. It is an amazing passage of Scripture, and it's a wonderful privilege to be able to share with you some of the insights that God has given me uh, this week in regards to this passage. Can I please just take a moment to pray um, that God's will would be done, that his voice would be heard this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of your word and the freedom that we have to read it and to explore and unpack it. And God, I am just so aware this morning of your holiness and your greatness and your majesty. As we come to this beautiful portion of scripture that says to us so much, Jesus, about who you are and all that you've done and will continue to do. That Lord, this morning, we would just catch a glimpse, a fresh glimpse of your glory. And that, Lord, we might bow down and worship you because you are so worthy of all our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just really, really close, because we're going through a series of um, our, our, our themes or our series this year are all kind of um, based on themes, the, the miracles of Jesus, the, this term is the majesty of Jesus. We're not following a, a book as such, which means that whenever we come to a text, it is important that we just understand a little bit of context to help place it. So just very briefly, a little bit about the epistle of to Colossians. It was written by the Apostle Paul around 62 AD to the church in Colossae, which Paul, in fact, had never visited. Um, it is known that to theologians that Paul wrote the letter of Colossians while he was in prison. And the apparent reason why this letter came about was through a person called Epaphras from Ephesus. It sounds a little bit like a Dr. Seuss book, Epaphras from Ephesus. But Epaphras was, scholars believe, the pastor, the founding planter of the church in Colossae. And he had actually come to Christ in Ephesus when Paul was there doing ministry. And he'd returned to Colossae to plant a church. He'd sort of gone out as a church planter, if you will. Now, we read in um, Colossians 4.2, this is a message that Paul says about Epaphras. Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. So I have this image of Epaphras visiting Paul in Rome and giving him a report about all the good things that are happening in this church plant, but also all the things that are threatening the church 
and the body of believers. And in particular, there were some heresies, a heretical teaching in particular about Christ not being fully divine, not being the Son of God. And what we see through Paul's writings in the Colossians is that the best way to refute heresy is to proclaim Christ in all of his fullness and in all of his divinity. And that's exactly what Paul does in the letter to the Colossians. It is a book full of what is called high Christology. It is an incredibly high view of Christ as God, and that's what's happening here in First Colossians. In Colossians, in Colossians 15 to 23, it's really fascinating. The more and more you study it, it becomes really evident that there are, in a sense, two sections. Verses 15 to 20 are all about Jesus. All of the words that are used referring to Jesus are are him and his. In verse 21, the language shifts. All of a sudden, it's now you and yours. And in a sense, Paul is now speaking to his listeners. He is speaking to the recipients of this letter. He is, in fact, speaking to us. (laughs) And so what we'll do this morning is we'll look at those two sections, 15 to 20 regarding Jesus, and then 21 to 23 regarding us, and in a sense, how we respond to the message. So in this section, in verses 15 to 20, what Paul gives us is a beautiful picture of firstly who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus will do. Firstly, Jesus we see from verse 15 and in verse 19. Jesus, the Son, fully reveals God the Father. Jesus, the Son, fully reveals God the Father. And this doesn't refer to Jesus' physical nature, but rather his character. In the character and the, and, and the person of Jesus, we see an exact representation of who God is. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. In a sense, in the person of Christ, God pulls back the curtain and reveals to all of humanity just what he is like. I'm sure you've heard the saying, if you want to know what God is like, Look at the person of Jesus and you will see exactly what God is like. When we think of or refer to an image, in our modern context, in our 21st century minds, we are necessarily referring to something that is, in a sense, similar but different. For example, you might, someone might say, well, Brendan's a spitting image of you, Joel. He might look similar to me, but he's a different person to me. However, in Greek philosophy, an image was not considered something distinct or separate from the object it represented. And so as God's image, Christ, is the exact representation of God. Now, in the Old Testament... God himself, God the Heavenly Father, the head of the Trinity, gives a description of his character, of his nature. He speaks these words to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, 
maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So when we read in Colossians 1.15 that Christ, the Son, is the image of God, it begs the question, what is God like? And we go back to the, New, to the Old Testament and see here that God says these qualities, these characteristics of himself. The nature of God is revealed as being compassionate, merciful, patient, abundantly loving, faithful, forgiving, and just. I don't have time this morning, but in my study this week, I found a corresponding gospel story where Jesus perfectly models and demonstrates every one of those qualities and characteristics of God. Jesus himself said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So in the Old Testament, in a sense, we can read about the characteristics and the quality and the nature of God. And then in the New Testament, we can actually see what that looks like in practice. It doesn't mean that we're not going to see it in practice in the Old because we do. But even more so, we see it in the new. It's, in a sense, the curtain being torn back and we're getting a a very fresh, clear revelation of what God is like. Number two, Jesus is God's agent in creation. For in him, this is referring to Jesus now, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is God's agent in creation. God had the idea, in a sense, perhaps God could be considered the architect. Jesus is the builder, the person who goes out and does God's work. Now, when we think of the word agent, what comes to mind? For me, what comes to mind is a real estate agent. This is Garth Hunter. He was our real estate agent when we sold our house a few years ago in Greenpoint. What an agent does is they act on behalf of somebody else. We never met or saw the person who purchased our home. We received the money, but we had nothing to do with that whole process and transaction. We engaged the services of an agent. In a similar fashion, Father God had this wonderful, magnificent idea and he employed the Son, Jesus God, to go about bringing that creation into fruition. Jesus is God's agent of creation. He was right there at the very beginning with God. He has no beginning and he has no end. We read in John 1 verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Wow. Now we might question this word firstborn and again this is where some of the heretical teaching arose that Jesus was a created one, that Jesus was the very first created one that Father God created. But the word firstborn, again, in the first century, was more about status and supremacy. Um, And that's what is intended here. It doesn't mean that Jesus was, in a sense, physically born. 
It also doesn't mean that, and we read in Matthews, that Jesus, the Messiah, was Mary's firstborn. It, it, it doesn't mean that when Jesus was born here on earth, that's when Jesus began to exist. Jesus is pre-existent. He is referred to as the uncreated one. But this word here refers more to status, that Jesus has the supremacy. He is the first, if you will. Thirdly, Jesus reigns over the universe. Verse 17 says, He is before all things. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. It's very difficult for us to really get our minds around the concept of the universe. But the universe effectively, in the most simple word I can think of, means everything. It means everything. It means all of the stars, all of the planets, all of the galaxies. It means the past, the present, the future. It means everything that is known and everything that is unknown, everything that has happened and everything that will happen, like everything, the heavens and the earth, just everything. Jesus is ruler. He is king. He is sovereign over it all. Again, that term sovereign is a term that is used for one who is at the absolute pinnacle or the head. The queen, again, is also referred to as the sovereign. Um, the president is referred to as the sovereign head of state. It's, in a sense, there is no higher authority or power than that person. And Jesus is the sovereign ruler. He is the king of the entire universe. He is not only the creator. He was not only there at the very beginning of time, initiating into fulfillment the plans and purposes of God, but he is also the sustainer. He creates and he sustains. It's not the greatest illustration and it breaks down, but a car manufacturer will make a car and when it is made, it is perfect. It is unblemished. It is exactly as it is meant to be. But as soon as that car is driven out of the driveway, very, very soon it is going to need attention and repair and ongoing maintenance. And in a similar fashion, Jesus as the agent of God's creation, has not just kind of set the world and then just left, like the world is on some kind of a, a timer, and eventually he will step in when it's his time to step in. He is involved in, in a sense, maintaining and sustaining his creation. Because Jesus holds all things together, he prevents the entire universe from falling into chaos and disrepair. The word that is used in some translations of Jesus is that he is preeminent. And again, this is a word that means above all else, entirely supreme, like there is no one higher than Jesus. Jesus is also the head of the church. 
We read in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Many of us would be familiar with the language of the church being the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of that body. Christ is the head of this local church. He is the head of every local church. Christ is the head of the universal church of all believers. Now, it's interesting when you think about the head in a few different ways. The body cannot function without a head. The head is, is so important because it leads and guides the body, but it is also the body's source of life. The head is where the brain resides, and without a brain, a person simply cannot survive and do anything. When the scriptures say that Jesus is the head, they mean that he, everything, the church exists only because of and for him. The head directs the body to do what the head decides. The body doesn't lead and guide the head. It's the other way around. You may have heard of the term water as the source of life. We cannot exist. No living thing can exist without water. And another, another understanding of headship is source. So Jesus is the source of the body. The body cannot live. The body cannot exist without the head. Jesus is the source. You'll also notice there that he is um, the firstborn from among the dead. And what's being referred to here, and I explained this to Brendan during the week, in the New Testament we see Jesus raising people from the dead. These are people who actually preceded Christ in resurrection. However, they all passed away again. When Jesus rose, when Jesus was resurrected, that's it. He will never, ever die again. So in a sense, he has pioneered through his resurrection, through death. He is the first to go through death and never again will he die. And what Jesus achieves through his resurrection is life. And we're back to the idea of the source. Jesus is the source of all life. He is the source of the church's life. He is the source of everybody's life who will be resurrected in his name. Jesus is not only God's agent in creation, but Jesus is also God's agent in recreation. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is not only the one who will bring creation about in the very beginning of time, he's not only the one who is intimately involved in sustaining creation and preventing it from completely entering into total chaos and disruption and dysfunction, but Jesus is also the agent that God will employ 
to restore and renew and remake everything better than it was even from the very beginning. One of the commentators that I read this week wrote this, the grim reference to Christ's blood and cross brings us down from the lofty heights of preeminence and fullness to the squalid depths of human pain and suffering. Isn't that amazing? That in one sense, in, in one verse, Jesus is being referred to as the preeminent one, embodying the fullness of God, and that very same person is shedding blood on a human cross. This is the glory and the majesty of God, of Jesus. Through the cross, Jesus brings reconciliation, reorder, restoration. He is going to remake and renew all things. Can you see how in verses 15 to 20, in just a few verses, there is so much theology about who Jesus is, about what Jesus has done, and about what Jesus will do. The second section of this scripture, as I mentioned, refers to us, who we were, who we are now, and what we must do. In a sense, Paul begins by looking in the rearview mirror. He's not talking about who you are now, but he begins by talking about who his listeners, and that includes all recipients of this letter, to which today that includes us, that he begins with who we were. And the Bible makes it very, very clear that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We were sinners. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. There's a few things to highlight here. Our sin, our rebellion from God, alienates us from God. To be alienated is to be withdrawn, estranged. It is to be disloyal or to be rebellious. To be alienated is to be bitter. And the Bible says that through our sin, we were alienated from God. And because of that, we were God's enemies. Even though God reached out to us and gave us every opportunity to live a perfect life in perfect relationship with him, we decided that we knew better and we rejected God's offer. But because of his great mercy, we've been given another chance. The other thing to note here is that Paul specifies that we were enemies of God in our minds. And what this refers to is that when we think of sin, we, we often think of the outward action of sin. But there's actually a source or a root cause for any action, and it actually begins in the mind. And that's why it is so important for us to have correct thoughts about who Christ is and about who we are. Christ is God 
And we are sinful, broken people. And sin begins in the mind. And that's what leads to the wrong behaviour. We were alienated from God. We were God's enemies, but we have been saved. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and completely free from accusation. Through Christ's um, death and resurrection on the cross, we now, those who put their trust in him, stand before a holy God as holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. It is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Friday week ago, I, had, I was involved in an, an incredibly minor little incident where somebody um, drove into the back of my car while I was parked stationary waiting to turn. And there's a very, very small amount of damage. And um, thankfully, it, it was all covered under insurance. And on last Friday, I was able to pick the vehicle up and it was completely without blemish. In fact, within only a matter of days, I was amazed at just how perfect this car that had once been broken had been restored. And as I looked at it and as I inspected it, I just, it was flawless. And I thought, this is incredible. This is exactly how God sees us. The reality is our lives are like this, a lot worse. That's very, very minor, like incredibly minor. To a perfectionist, it's major. Okay. <laughs> but it was super, super minor. And uh, I, I couldn't cope with that for very long. I was like, get that baby to the auto repairs as quickly as possible. Um, but our lives are a mess, aren't they? We are so broken. It's as if that new car has been made and it is perfect. But the reality is, as soon as you drive it out of that driveway, it's going to need ongoing maintenance. Just imagine there's no such thing as insurance. You drive it recklessly and it becomes a total write-off. And there's nothing that you can do. That's, that's your life. Our life, because of sin, is a write-off. Like there's nothing that can be done to restore what was once perfect. What God has done through Jesus is he's come to all humanity and he said, if you will come to me and recognise that you've made a mess, recognise that you're written off and nothing good that you can possibly do can actually make this situation any better. And what I'd love to do for you is completely restore and remake this vehicle so that it is completely without blemish like this. And the offer is, do we say yes or do we say no? Sadly, many people choose to reject God's offer. But the offer is there to stand before a holy God as holy, unblemished and without accusation. Paul is speaking to Christians. He is speaking to people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're somebody who has not yet placed your faith in Christ. The invitation is extended to you. Will you say to Jesus, I have made a royal mess of my life. There is nothing that I can do to repair the damage that I have done to my life and indeed the lives of others who through my sinfulness I have also affected. And you can accept God's 
wonderful gift of salvation through his son and be remade new. Finally, we must stand firm in our faith. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that of which I, Paul, have become a servant. We must stand firm in our faith. Faith is not something that we kind of just sign it, take a ticket, like at the deli. It's not just take a ticket and then wander off and you know, pay no more attention to the fact that we need to be paying attention. Faith is something that we put our trust and our faith in Christ and we seek to live that out. We stand firm in it. We stand firm in the hope and the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is that you and I, the reality is we are broken, fallen, blemished human beings. But our hope and the gospel is that in Jesus, we are holy, without accusation and blameless. What a wonderful hope we have. And we need to stand firm in that hope. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwelling in Christ. You know what it looks like to stand firm in your faith? It is a disciple whose life is completely full of Christ. God's fullness dwelt in Christ, and Christ's plan for us is that his fullness through his Holy Spirit would dwell in us. And the whole idea of an overflowing life is that it is a life that is going to bless and serve others. When we look at Jesus, we see a life that blessed and served others. Jesus perfectly revealed God. As those who experience the fullness of God by his Spirit, it is now our role to stand firm in that faith by blessing others and revealing the goodness of God through the way we lead our lives. What a wonderful passage of Scripture where we see that Jesus reveals God, Jesus is God's agent in creation, Jesus reigns over the universe, Jesus is the head of the church, and Jesus is God's agent in recreation. And we see that we were sinners, but we have been saved, and we must continue to stand firm in our faith and the hope of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we honour you, we worship you, we adore you. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are entirely sovereign. You are the creator, the maker, the sustainer, the redeemer of creation. We humbly accept that we were estranged and alienated from you and because of our sin, we were your enemies. But we thank you that because of Jesus and his glorious work on the cross, we who put their faith and trust in him can be made holy and blameless and without accusation. Lord, help us to stand firm in the hope and the promise of the gospel. Not for our sake, not for our glory, but indeed for the glory and the sake of Jesus through whom all things were made, through and for him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.